Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 9th, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardell, and this is your source each Friday for commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on all manner of salient appellate law developments. This week's show presents opposing viewpoints on a consequential and deeply divisive element, California criminal law, the death penalty. On Tuesday, the state's high court heard arguments for and against Proposition 66, a ballot initiative passed by a slim margin last November that aims to speed up California's administration of capital punishment. Currently, capital cases can extend up to 10 or 15 years before direct and collateral appeals are exhausted. The initiative instructs courts to cut that time substantially and conclude capital matters within five years. Also, it changes various penal code sections with the aim of realizing that goal. For now, the measure is stayed as the state high court reviews a petition contesting its legality. On that question, our guests will present opposing views. First, we'll hear from Professor Elizabeth Semmel from UC Berkeley School of Law, who argues, among other things, that Prop 66 violates the separation of powers rule and impinges unconstitutionally on state appellate court jurisdiction. She'll also contend that the measure is impractical, financially burdensome, and lacking in safeguards that ensure reliable administration of the death penalty. Then, Michelle Hennessy, president of the L.A. County Association of Deputy District Attorneys, will make the case for Prop 66. She helped draft the measure and contends it merely eliminates inefficiencies that unnecessarily delay capital punishment in California. And she says that savings created by the measure will help mitigate any additional administrative and judicial costs it creates. She also contends that Prop 66 in no way undermines the reliability of state executions. Before we hear from my guests, though, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available to podcast listeners. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further ado, then, let's hear from my first guest, Professor Elizabeth Semmel. I'm very happy to be joined by Professor Elizabeth Semmel, clinical professor of law and the director of the Death Penalty Clinic at UC Berkeley School of Law. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. We're chatting today about a case captioned uh, Briggs v. Brown, perhaps described more informatively as the case against Prop 66, a, a ballot initiative from last November that stands to to meaningfully change the uh, administration of capital punishment in the state of California um, and sort of described it with the, the broadest brushstrokes um, meant to, to speed it up. At the outset, we might discuss your uh, background briefly. This is an, an area of law uh, about which you are not a, a neutral commentator, to say the least. You are certainly quite steeped in it. You served as a, a deputy public defender out of law school, defended in, in private practice uh, homicide defendants and, and folks in capital cases, and then uh, in addition served as the director of the American Bar Association's Death Penalty Representation Project in Washington, D.C. So getting into as, as much or little, as little detail as you would like, could you describe sort of uh, the, the most formative experiences that you've had in those roles and sort of how they inform the way you regard the death penalty and its administration in the state and reform measures like uh, those in, in Prop 66? Well, I came to capital defense the way many public defenders do. You work your way up from the less to the more serious cases. And at some point in your career, for me, it was about 10 years in, you are confronted with the prospect of taking a death penalty case that is representing a client facing capital punishment, and you do or you don't. Uh, I was already in private practice at the time, so in a somewhat different situation than I might have been if I was still a public defender. But, you know, I, I certainly... Uh, embrace the opportunity, although I did so with enormous trepidation, uh, which I continue to feel to this day because I can't think of any greater responsibility as a lawyer than representing someone who faces execution, at least at some point in the process. 
So I think uh, clearly the experiences I had along the way as a public defender were formative. My involvement in capital cases at the trial level and then later in habeas corpus representation, that is the stage of post-conviction review that comes after the appeal. And also, I would say, uh, going to work on in Washington, D.C. on the death penalty representation project was significant as well because my focus shifted from California to primarily the Deep South, where the resources are the least adequate relative to the rest of the country and the executions are far more numerous than we've ever experienced in California. So it certainly gave me a much deeper and richer understanding of what I also, excuse me, what I always and um, certainly came more and more to understand as the grotesque inequities in the administration of the death penalty. We'll get more in, into those as we discuss the reform measures proposed here, but perhaps we could mention also the, the state's own background with, with capital punishment, and this is a topic that could really comprise an entire podcast, California's history with the death penalty. So perhaps it might suffice to, to just lay out how the current death penalty scheme came to be enacted back in the, the 1970s and why that particular method of enactment, uh, ballot initiative, makes it sort of more difficult in our state than in perhaps in others to to repeal the death penalty. And also, uh, just as a, as a bit of extra context, I, there have been fairly infrequent executions since the enactment, uh, reenactment of the, the policy in the 70s. Is that correct? Yes. So the cap- capital punishment, that is the death penalty, was declared unconstitutional as applied, that is, as administered in 1972 by the U.S. Supreme Court. And it it was already on hold in California as a result of litigation that happened in our state. So there hadn't been executions for several years, at least, before the decision in 1972 in a case called Furman. And then four years later, in a case called Gregg, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that a trio of statutes, one from Georgia, another from Florida, another from Texas, represented at, at least a constitutional capital punishment scheme. They were somewhat different statutes, but constitutional capital punishment scheme. What had happened in the four years between Furman and Gregg is that a number of states, as I recall, about 35, had reinstated the death penalty. So the question was on the table for the U.S. Supreme Court again. California reinstated the death penalty in 1977 by statute. That statute was replaced in 1978 by initiatives similar to Proposition 66 that we're going to talk about, which is to say a proposition voted on by uh, the electorate. And that initiative was very, very expansive. It doubled the number of circumstances for which a defendant could be death eligible. It made it easier for prosecutors to prove death eligibility in several respects. So we went from seven death sentences under the 1977 law to an average of 32 a year for about 20 years until 2000 and about 20 cents. This was a period of, you know, great popularity for the death penalty and harsh sentencing measures. So we experienced, you know, a real 20-year spike in in death sentencing. And that's essentially how we got the death penalty that we have. And because the death penalty is a creature of, of initiative and uh, enshrined in the Constitution, it, repeal by any other means is all but impossible, at least in this state. That makes California quite different from every other state, with the possible exception of Nebraska. So everywhere else, suffice to say, a legislature can repeal capital punishment by statute. 
But here, of course, it must be done, as you say, by ballot initiative. And, and uh, such initiatives have been proposed the past two general elections. So in this, this past November's election, there, there was Prop 66 on the ballot, um, sort of interestingly juxtaposed with another measure, Prop 62. Of course, that was a death penalty repeal measure. It has uh, a predecessor on the 2012 ballot. There was um, a similar measure that, that failed there. And uh, Prop 62 also failed here, whereas Prop 66 passed uh, by a very narrow margin. Um, specifically as to Prop 66, is there any sort of predicate for, for that measure? Have there been um, reform measures proposed to speed up the death penalty before? And as you, you've mentioned to me off the air, there was a, a report in 2008 by the California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice that did provide sort of a blueprint for a, a more efficient death penalty. I understand, are uh, any of those blueprints entailed in Prop 66? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So to my knowledge, there hasn't been a reform, so-called reform measure on the ballot before. Speed up measure, I think, is the only accurate way to describe it. There have cer- there's certainly been talks and, and initiatives were proposed, but they never made it to the ballot before. I, one of the things that's particularly, I think, significant about Proposition 66, and, and I would say troubling, is as you mentioned, in 2008, a report was issued by the California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice. This was a bipartisan blue ribbon commission appointed by the state Senate. It included, it actually was chaired by John Van de Kamp, former attorney general of the state and one of the original petitioners in the case we're about to talk about. But John Van de Kamp, prosecutors, defense lawyers, judges, law enforcement of various descriptions, victim advocates. It was a real diverse commission, and it looked took a four-year look at the death penalty in the state of California. It proposed a number of reforms that were designed, I think, the best way to describe what uh, the conclusions that the commission came to is you can have a fast, cheap, and unreliable capital punishment system in the way we many of us think about a, a state like Texas. You can have a faster, more expensive, and more likely to be reliable system. And what the commission tried to do was to propose a system that would help uh, reduce some of the time that it takes to resolve capital cases. But it was very candid in saying that in order to accomplish these ends, it was going to cost the people of the state of California a lot of money. So from a system that cost about $140 million a year back in 2008, to implement the reforms contemplated by the commission, it would be about $217 million a year. And I'm happy to detail those reforms, none of which, by the way, appear in Proposition 66. Uh, in contrast to, and the commission points it out, although this was not its recommendation, a system in which life without possibility of parole was the ultimate punishment, that would be about $11 million a year. So. What the commission tried to do is look very hard at the kinds of backlogs of cases we have, understand why we have them, and and propose fixes, not perfect fixes, because there's simply no way to make a system remotely reliable and operate, frankly, as expeditiously as Proposition 66 purports to do. With a with more swift capital punishment system pr- uh, proposed by the 2008 commission, is the additional expense, I imagine, just judicial resources that would need to be applied, more judges and courts being able to hear appeals, that sort of thing? 
Right. So across the board, recognizing that, you know, a lot of times when people think about how are defendants represented in most cases, most defendants, many, many defendants being indigent, they're represented by public defender offices. And the, the reason for that is they're efficient systems of delivering um, quality representation because they're able to handle a lot of cases in contrast to what an individual lawyer can do. And we don't, ha- we have a number of, we have three capital representation offices in the state, two of which handle, uh, cases direct, directly, directly represent clients. The habeas corpus resource center that handles habeas corpus cases, the office of the state public defender, which handles the appeals. But those offices are relatively small. That is relative to the volume of cases. So the idea is to replicate what we do at the county level in public defender office by greatly increasing the size of those offices so that lawyers can handle more cases. And yes, as you said, increasing judicial uh, resources and also increasing the amount of money that we pay to private lawyers taking these cases so that it becomes financially feasible for lawyers to take them. So there are a host of reforms. Another thing that the commission recommended was reducing the number of special circumstances, that is, circumstances for which someone could face the death penalty, making the death penalty smaller uh, as a way of also reducing the number of cases that the state courts have to manage over time. Okay. So that system identified by the commission, uh, in theory, would create a, a more swift but equally reliable death penalty re- regime. As you say, Prop 66 didn't really uh, in- include any of the recommendations of that, that commission. So could you tell me, I guess, what uh, what is included in Prop 66? Uh, what are the pr- provisions by which the death penalty uh, would be more swiftly administered? So the only way to describe Prop 66 is a top-to-bottom revision of the process by which death judgments are currently reviewed in the state of California with absolutely no provisions for funding. In other words, where is the money going to come from for all of this? No blueprint for actually how it's going to be carried out uh, with any and no nothing to assure the voters that speed will not override reliability. So beginning with... The, the appeals process, the review process, uh, Proposition 66 provides that the courts uh, in the state of California shall resolve the direct appeal, what we call in California the automatic appeal, and the initial habeas review within a period of five years. And that cases that are now heard in the California Supreme Court, that is habeas corpus pet- petitions, should be sent down to the trial court, the superior court where they originated. So if a defendant was, for example, tried and sentenced to death in San Diego, normally he would file his habeas petition in the California Supreme Court. Instead, now the California Supreme Court would send that case back to San Diego. To understand the the magnitude of this change, I think it it bears talking at least a, a bit about how many cases are we are really on the table here. What does this mean in terms of how the courts administer are administered? So, as of the time Prop uh, 66 was on the ballot, I think still currently, the the California Supreme Court had roughly 330 undecided automatic appeals. Let me just say parenthetically, we have about 750 people on death row in California. And of that number, 330 automatic appeals. The appeal is the first step of review after an individual is sentenced to death. And the cases are in various stages. That is, these 
30 cases. Some of them have actually been briefed and are waiting for oral argument. Some are in the process of what we call record correction. That is, these enormous trial records are being prepared so lawyers can actually tackle the direct appeal. And what would happen under Proposition 66 is cases that now take an average of 15 and a half years to decide that is the direct appeal would have to be decided much more expeditiously. So that's an enormous volume. The court currently decides about 24 automatic appeals each year. So if you think about this in hard numbers, to do what it is Proposition 66 mandates, the court would have to decide about 64 capital appeals a year, that's one per week, which I think, I I just can say bluntly, is not achievable. There are also 500 habeas cases that are unresolved. In 125 of those cases, a petition has been filed in the California Supreme Court. But in 350 cases, lawyers have not even been appointed. Again, these would all have to be decided within that five-year period. And that would be done, as I mentioned a moment ago, by transferring, first of all, those 125 cases that are at the Cal Supreme Court currently, transferring them down to the Superior Court. And currently, when a lawyer is appointed on a habeas uh, case to file the habeas petition, he or she has three years, give or take. It depends on circumstances of of appointment generally, three years in which to file a petition. We can talk about why that three years is necessary, but under Prop 66, that would have to be done in a year. So these mandatory deadlines are a huge part of how Proposition 66 intends to speed up the process. Yeah, perhaps we could unpack the reason for the three-year limitation window, because I suppose um, to someone not terribly familiar with the process, it does sound like one year might be enough of a, a time window to allow folks to prepare and bring a habeas, uh, a collateral appeal. Right. It's very important to understand the difference between a direct appeal, again, what we call in California automatic appeal, and a habeas corpus petition. And the difference is this. A direct appeal is limited to what we call the four corners of the record. And the record in any case, capital or non-capital, consists of all of the papers that are filed in court as a case goes along, the pleadings lawyers file, the orders courts issue, and whatever occurs on the record of the case that is transcribed, which could be hearings and ultimately a trial and a sentencing proceeding. Those are That's what comprises the four corners of the record. And when you file a direct appeal, you as a lawyer can raise any legal or constitutional issue that is, can we use the phrase cognizable, but what I mean in simple terms is that can be identified as being on the record. And a simple way to understand that is, for example, if a judge gives an instruction to the jury before the jury goes out to deliberate and the defense lawyer objects to the instruction as being improper, under the a statute or the Constitution, there's a record of that ob- objection that a reviewing court can actually consider. Lawyers can argue about it. It's there in the record. Or if, for example, a prosecutor makes an argument and the defense lawyer objects that the argument is improper, you can see that in the record. You can Both sides can argue about the impropriety and a court can resolve it. So it's as I said, confined to the record. But remember, in these cases, the record on average is 9,000 pages in capital cases. The records are extensive. So that's the direct appeal, and that's what the California Supreme Court will resolve on the direct appeal. 
the habeas corpus petition is quite different. The habeas corpus, and I think when most people think about why is it that capital cases are reversed, they usually think about what they may not know it, but what they're thinking about or what they're hearing about is something that happened in the habeas proceeding. Because the habeas proceeding is the first and only time that a defendant, now known as a petitioner, can go outside the four corners of the record and reinvestigate what went wrong at trial, whether what went wrong had to do with his conviction or his sentence. So when, for example, people read about situations in which DNA evidence that was not available at trial is discovered, that didn't happen in the direct appeal. That happened in the habeas proceedings. Or when they find, as happens, that the prosecution withheld information which showed that someone else was responsible for the crime. That isn't discovered and can't be brought to the attention of the court until the habeas proceeding. And in capital cases, a, 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 a not uncommon issue has to do with the competence of the lawyer who represented the defendant at trial. Did this lawyer do everything the Constitution requires that he or she do? And often issues concern the penalty phase. Did the lawyer bring to the consideration of the jury all of the facts and circumstances about the defendant's life that would have inclined the jury to bring in a verdict of life instead of death? Well, the investigation of those circumstances or the reinvestigation doesn't happen until the habeas corpus proceedings. That's when the lawyer, the new lawyers have an opportunity to go back to the court and say, if this information had been known to the jury, it is reasonably likely that the outcome would have been different. So the standard is high. In other words, you have to show in an ineffectiveness claim that the lawyer's performance was what we call deficient, it was unreasonable, and that what it is that you've unearthed and presented to the court is reasonably likely to have changed the outcome. But as I'm describing, I hope your listeners can understand that when you're reinvestigating a case, you need investigators and you often need experts, pathologists, mental health professionals, etc., to reassess the evidence. And this just simply doesn't happen in the course of a year. It's, I think maybe the last point I would make is that um, one of the things we know about reversals that happen in habeas corpus, the kind of evidence I've been describing, is that it takes a long time to unearth this evidence. When prosecutors withhold evidence, they withhold it for a long time. It's many years before these kinds of errors are discovered. So it's the, the simple way to put it is it's not going to happen in a year. So the, the likelihood of error, every time we expedite, we speed up without some type of, um, some type of safeguards, which 66 doesn't happen, the risk of error is increased. Okay, I, I did want to flag before we get into the petitioner's arguments against Prop 66, one more provision within it pertaining to uh, the sort of requirement that I guess more attorneys become available to work on cases like this. There is some provision uh, related to that that I, I suppose would, in theory, create more attorney resources to uh, to handle these cases in, in a more swift manner. Right. It's superficially appealing, but highly uh, impractical, and I would say impossible provision. So important to understand that the reason we have uh, 350 individuals without counsel in their habeas cases is because we do have standards. You know, in other words, the type of qualifications that lawyers who are going to do the most complex of criminal defense litigation have to meet. The standards are not onerous, but they're real. And 
we simply have a shortage of lawyers qualified to take these cases, in addition to which many lawyers refuse to do these cases, not just because of the inadequacy of compensation, but I would say the evidence is clear, more because the funding that's necessary to do the type of investigation that I was just describing is unavailable. So a lawyer who takes a habeas case, some an individual lawyer, not one of the lawyers at the at one of the agencies, has to figure out how am I going to do the kind of investigation that the Constitution requires me to do without the funds? Well, either I can take the inadequate uh, compensation that I'm receiving from the court and put the money, my salary is I mean, essentially my pay toward doing that investigation, or I cannot do it. That's a Hobson's choice for most attorneys in private practice, most of whom are in small firms or individual practice. And so the reality of this, of these 350 cases, we don't have the lawyers. The solution, the so-called solution that 66 came up with is to say that lawyers who are currently on a list to take appointments in serious felony cases, but not capital cases, because they are not otherwise qualified to take capital cases, must take capital appointments or be removed from the appointment list. Hmm. So a poll was done of these of these attorneys on this list before the initiative was voted on and overwhelmingly the lawyers said I would get off the list rather than take the case. Hmm. So this is not a solution to finding lawyers. It's it's both unrealistic and I think tremendously risky because you're going to get lawyers who aren't qualified, and again, you're going to exacerbate the risks. Okay, then maybe we can move into the the, the legal arguments advanced by sure. the, the petitioners here. Um, and I know there's a, a handful. Could you perhaps walk me uh, through them and, and how just how their the reasoning works and, and why, uh, from a sure. legal sense, Prop 66 is problematic? So there are about four, I would say, four major arguments. Um, the first has to do with jurisdiction which is the contention that Proposition 66 tries to revise the state constitution by taking away from the superior courts, the courts of appeal, and the California Supreme Court original jurisdiction in habeas corpus cases. And I can go into more detail about that, but the first is this jurisdictional argument. The second is a separation of powers argument, which basically says that, yes, legislation can place restrictions on the operation of a court, but it cannot take away from the court its ability to exercise its judicial function. It can't take it away. It can't materially impair it. And the kind of restrictions I've been describing defeat the ability, the power and authority of the court, particularly the California Supreme Court, to control its docket. The, sec- the third, excuse me, has to do with what we call the single subject rule, which is a provision of the state constitution. And the idea here is that when you have an initiative, in order for it to comply with the single subject rule, all of the provisions in the initiative has to be reasonably germane to each other. The argument is that there are a number of provisions in Prop 66 that are unrelated to, that is not germane to its unifying, its overall purpose, which was to reform the death penalty process by expediting it. There's also an equal protection argument that has to do with the ways in which Proposition 66 would disadvantage capital defendants in their ability to seek review as compared to individuals who've been convicted of less serious crimes. And the last issue 
which is not so much an argument about the unconstitutionality of 66, but more a question of what will happen if, in fact, any of its provisions are unconstitutional, has to do with the severability. And that really means that if some of the provisions of 66 are unconstitutional, what happens to the remaining provisions? So that's a quick overview of the arguments. Perhaps uh, it might be useful to, to view those kind of against the proposed counterarguments by the respondents and, and interveners here. Perhaps you could help me uh, unpack them a bit. I understand you know, one of the counterarguments is that there's some permissive language in the proposition, and so in that, that jurisdictional uh, cause of action is a, a bit undercut because um, there's like a, a shall as opposed to, to must when it comes to habeas corpus cases being transferred down to the, the trial court level. Also, the, the separation of powers counterargument is essentially that you know there is some power for the, the legislature to direct the, the functioning of the courts. Uh, I think the single subject rule is supposed to be construed liberally, they say, and um, the equal protection claim doesn't have a lot of force because we're not talking about a suspect classification. Are those kind of the, the main counterarguments, and what, uh, what are the responses to them? No, I think that's right. You've, you've summarized them well. And I, I have to say, I found this response by the respondents, that is those supporting the proposition, to be rather surprising because when you read the arguments that were in the ballot, in the pamphlets and the publicity put out by the proponents, Proposition 66 was portrayed as going to be effective because it mandated these very significant changes. In other words, its ability to work efficiency, to become, you know, to change our system from one that is arguably slow to one that is very speedy depends upon requiring courts to comply with these deadlines. And that was precisely how it was portrayed to the voters. But it is now being argued that that this language is rather than mandatory, that it's aspirational in some way. And so the response by the petitioners is essentially that there is so much shall language in the specific provisions of the initiative, if you can take them one by one, that the word shall is used very often, and that there isn't the kind of modifying language that you often see when there's a there's a deadline and a statute says, you know, the court del- shall do X except um, or unless. And so it's clear within the four corners of the language of the statute that the court's ability to exercise its jurisdiction to control the proceedings is preserved. And that kind of language doesn't appear in Proposition 66. And additionally, Proposition 66 has a provision that enables an individual, including, for example, a crime victim, a prosecutor, etc., to bring a petition for writ of mandate, which is a petition that is directive, that directs the court to act, to bring a petition if these deadlines are not complied with. So the argument of the proponents is that you, when you look at both the plain language of these provisions and the intention of the proponents as explained to the voters, there's no way to understand these provisions as aspirational. They have to be understood as mandatory. And it, just to, to take a little digression into the oral argument, and I, I don't um, I don't prognosticate about cases ever, but I do think it was fair to say that at least some of the justices who were most active in the oral argument did raise serious questions, again, at least for purposes of the, of hearing what the parties had to say. 
raised serious questions about how the language uh, could be used, could be mandatory in its in its terms, but understood to be aspirational. This seemed to be problematic for several of them. Some of those. So legal- I'm sorry, I, we, we went through one. We went through the should <laughs> issue. I don't mean to, to belabor them too much. Do you think there there's a worthwhile ground to to cover? Well, those I think should- yeah. Understanding the this issue of separation of powers, I think, is really important because I would say both the separation of powers and the idea of original jurisdiction. These these two points are, I think, very critical to understanding the proponent, the excuse me, the petitioner's arguments, because embedded in our constitution, a very fundamental notion in our constitution in terms of original jurisdiction is that any of the three levels of courts, whether it's the Superior Court, the Court of Appeal, or the California Supreme Court, can hear a habeas petition originally filed in its court. And Proposition 66 takes that away by requiring, I would argue, requiring this transfer of cases from the California Supreme Court, where they traditionally have been heard, and there's a reason why they've been heard there, down to the Superior Courts. And then, if a petition filed in the Superior Court and the defendant loses, you have a right to appellate review, but appellate review is very different from filing an original petition. So this works a major, major change on what the Constitution says about the jurisdiction of these three courts. And then with respect to these time limits and the idea of separation of powers, and the idea, the rule, constitutional rule of separation of powers, as I've explained these time limits and the kind of speed it would require, you can imagine, I'm sure your listeners can understand what this will do to the California Supreme Court's consideration of any cases other than death penalty cases. It essentially says to the court, 66 does, that civil litigants with important matters, and perhaps matters that have constitutional import to thousands, if not millions of Californians, have to be put on hold, have to be put on the back burner while these cases are decided. Now, by deciding 24 capital appeals a year, the court already devotes a highly significant portion of its docket to these cases. But to dictate that it has to go even further, it becomes highly problematic in terms of its authority under the Constitution. That uh, sort of leads me to discussing more broad policy considerations that are at play here. And is that the one of the, the most salient, the dedication of resources that the California Supreme Court will have to to provide? It seems like the other ones we have discussed, the sort of compulsion of attorneys to take cases that they wouldn't otherwise want to, and the, the idea that habeas appeals are then heard by the same trial court that uh, convicted and sentenced a death penalty defendant that, or one could argue, uh, sort of goes against the spirit of an appeal, which you know, usually there's a, a new set of eyes in, in such circumstances, I guess. What, uh, above all, are, are the principal policy considerations that uh, you and, and folks uh, against Prop 66 have, have in mind? I think, you know, at the end of the day, the idea that we would do this um, on a rocket docket, that's the turn of phrase I would use, with and and one that really re- removes the safeguards that we have at least historically had. It bears mention that, you know, a couple of years ago, the uh, federal courts that, you know, the federal district court and the Court of Appeal, the Ninth Circuit in California, considered a challenge that was brought to California's death penalty, arguing that the death penalty 
was unconstitutional because it was arbitrary in the way it was carried out and and that these delays were essentially that we've been talking about the delays the word some people would use but certainly time it takes for cases to be concluded uh were were unconstitutional when the attorney general of the state of california in the same office that argued prop 66 responded to the arguments made on behalf of the petitioners in federal court the centerpiece of the attorney general's argument was essentially in california we do it right in california we take our time in california we have a better system because the system works more slowly that means it works more carefully and the risk of error is reduced as a result now whether i agree or disagree with that it just seems to me fundamentally irreconcilable for the attorney general to go in to federal court and defend the current system we have as necessary to ensure reliability and then stand up in front of the California Supreme Court and argue that we can constitutionally and safely make the changes that Proposition 66 would require. And I, let me just say a, a word about the issue of counsel in this how the superior courts, just as a functional matter, are going to handle these cases. There is the issue you raised of the same court that heard the trial actually considering the habeas petition. That happens, in fact, in a number of states. It isn't so much that that's disturbing, although it's problematic for sure. It is that the superior courts are absolutely unequipped to handle these cases. So the lawyers who practice at the trial level, by and large, don't have the expertise, the qualifications to handle these, to handle habeas cases, which are a different area of the law. Trial judges don't review capital habeas cases. So that skill set, that knowledge base isn't something they have. It's something they would have to learn. And then we're talking, as I said, about records that are voluminous, cases that are enormous. If by my recollection, I believe the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court said we need about 250 more Superior Court judges to manage the current cases our courts are trying to handle. So this will add enormously to the workload of the Superior Courts, and I would note that I think about 50% of these cases come from about three counties. So it's not as though this workload is going to be distributed in some even way, because they're going to go back to the case that, excuse me, the counties from whence they came, and disproportionately three to five counties account for most of the capital sentences in the state. So there are tremendous issues, just as a logistical matter, and, you know, then ultimately as a matter of fundamental fairness and reliability that are involved in removing these cases to the superior courts. Maybe just one broader one to wrap up. If we sort of stipulate that the resources for um, capital punishment administration, you know, remain relatively close to what they are, that is to say, you know, arguably limited, is there just sort of an unsolvable tension here between either being able to administer the system reliably or quickly, but is it sort of impossible to conceive of, of doing both? Would, would, you, would you say that? And if that is the case, there do seem to be constitutional worries on both sides. As you say, the, the federal court, the, the district level held a, that the California death penalty regime was unconstitutional because of delays and because of the more deliberative process. I know there has been some mention at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, along similar lines by 
for instance, uh, Justice Breyer mentioning that that long waits for execution could be a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So if kind of on either side there's constitutional questions, and also you need to stipulate that seems like at least for the foreseeable future, judging from Prop 62's um, failure, we're going to have capital punishment in the state. Sort of what I know this is a, a not an easy question, but what's sort of the path forward? What is the what is the answer here? Well, the you know, from my estimation or from my view, of course, the answer would have been the passage of Prop 62, and I'm not sure. at all persuaded that it had to fail. But I certainly think that Proposition 66 sowed enormous confusion in the voters, and I think the small margin by which 62 lost and the very tiny mar- margin by which 66 passed is indicative of that voter confusion. I mean, when you look at polling, putting aside the vote, which is, of course, consequential, but when you look at polling in California, it's fair to say that, that, that you know, at worst, Californians are divided on this question, and at best, a majority of Californians would support life without possibility of parole in contrast to the death penalty. But we all, we do have, I think, a quandary that we uh, the passage of 66 has set us back from solving as opposed to helped us to try and resolve. You know, if I can go back to the 2008 report of the Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice, you know, aside from my personal views about the death penalty, which obviously are in favor of its end, this was at least a sober attempt to figure out a way forward, as you as you said. And rather than look at that sober and rational attempt and the very concrete propositions that the commission offered, 66 comes in, you know, and essentially proposes blowing up the system uh, in favor of a process that can do nothing except undercut reliability. And I think that's a, a tremendous problem. And I did sense, you know, in listening to the questions that at least some of the justices asked, a, ver- a, a serious concern about their ability under this type of, under the 66 regime to do a careful job of considering capital cases. Okay, well, I won't ask you to precisely forecast the outcome here, but we'll, we'll find out yeah, soon enough. Yeah. Uh, certain, certainly a very, a very consequential and interesting matter. So be uh, curious to see just how the court feels on this matter. But for the time being, Professor Elizabeth Simmel, thanks so much for being on the podcast to share your thoughts. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's Professor Elizabeth Semmel, UC Berkeley School of Law, making the case against Prop 66. Let's hear now from Michelle Hannessy, offering her opposing viewpoints. I'm very happy to be joined by Michelle Hannessy, Deputy District Attorney here in Los Angeles County and the President of the Association of LA Deputy District Attorneys and the head of a group of Amici that filed a, uh, a brief in the case we're discussing today. Ms. Hannessy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Listeners have just heard Professor Elizabeth Semmel from UC Berkeley Law uh, making the case against Proposition 66. Um, of course, a case the, the California Supreme Court is considering now that oral arguments have been heard. So glad to have you here to make the case uh, for the proposition. Um, but first, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to talk just briefly about your professional background as um, it, it pertains to the subject matter at issue here. You've been a veteran attorney of capital trials. So uh, in that capacity, how, um, has, um, how have your experiences shaped your view of this particular criminal justice issue? 
Oh, 100% has shaped my view of the issue. My very first experience working on a capital case was as a law clerk with this office. And the first thing that you have to do, whether you be a law clerk just do, doing menial things or as the lead attorney, you first have to decide if this is within your, your moral compass. Um, and that's a very personal decision. But you, you have to make that decision if you're going to work on these cases. And what made the decision for me were the facts of the cases. Capital cases are a completely uh, different if you will, factual scenario, usually than your run-of-the-mill average murder cases. They are just so much more egregious um, that they really are a beast apart. Um, and, it, and it became clear to me very quickly that I was comfortable with the concept of death as the ultimate punishment for these very rare individuals. If you would mind, can we tease out the way in which a typical murder case might be different from a, a capital murder case? Well, I know the in, in my office in Los Angeles County, and I can really only speak to Los Angeles County, the, the huge majority of cases in which we seek death involve either the murder of multiple victims or an allegation of prior murder convictions. So in most cases, they have killed uh, multiple people. Um, and I find that notable because in, in the cases that I've handled, every one of the individuals not only killed multiple people, but killed multiple people on multiple occasions. It was never a single act. It was never a single bad day. It was always repeated conduct. And I have to think the other real commonality between the capital cases I've observed is that these defendants, um, rather than seeming remorseful, will usually be bragging and laughing about the murders. Okay, then that uh, probably starts to answer my next question, which is with respect to Proposition 66. Specifically, you, you've been a, a, a strong and vocal advocate for this proposition and its enactment. What, uh, in, in your view specifically, is sort of broken about the, the California death penalty system that needed to be fixed by Proposition 66? And what uh, does the proposition uh, do to, to remedy those flaws? Well, in, in all fairness, not only am I a supporter, I'm one of the drafters of Proposition 66. So I'm, I was very involved in the drafting and, you know, personally written numerous clauses and worked with the committee on this from the very beginning to the very end. Um, so I won't pretend I'm not biased on the issue. Um, but it became apparent to me very quickly when I got involved in the tail end of capital cases, e.g. when I was assigned to do clemency uh, hearings and that the system was completely stalled out for really sometimes ridiculous reasons. And I just started looking around and trying to figure out what's gone wrong here. Why isn't this working? And there was just a panoply of reasons from the very, very beginning of the process to the very, very end of the, the appeals process. There were problems throughout and a lot of them were unnecessary problems. Unnes causing unnecessary delays. And I think what, what the public really needs to understand is this doesn't try to speed up the process by making people do the same work faster necessarily. A lot of the, the delays are times when nothing is happening. Right now, it is an average of five-year delays just to get an attorney appointed. Nothing is happening in that time. The defendant is just sitting there without being represented. And that represents a good one quarter to one third of the time for the direct appeal in the state. If you get an, appoint, uh, get an attorney immediately appointed, you've just cut the delay by a third. And you've lost no um, due process whatsoever. 
we'll we'll get more into it, but we could go ahead and approach the the topic. Speaking of the appointment of attorneys, one sort of policy concern with uh, held by the petitioners here is that an element of Prop 66 will sort of draft more attorneys into the capital defense system who didn't, didn't intend to to take cases like that. Um, can you tell me a bit about that that provision and um, if how you view the concern that the other side has here that folks that perhaps didn't really intend or, or want to be part of those cases would be would be drafted into the system a bit against uh, their intention. Well, that's that's the provision I am least concerned about. Firstly, given the number of private attorneys who've approached me to say they'd gladly handle capital p- appeals. But frankly, as a government employee, it offends me that any attorney wants to say to the state, give me your money, I will take your money, but I want to pick and choose only the easiest cases. I don't get to do that at my job. The bar panel at the county level doesn't get to pick and choose. If they did, the attorneys would be picking and choosing the easiest and, if you will, least distasteful cases, and there would be no one to represent the child molesters. So if they want to agree to accept the state's money, they're going to need to agree to accept whatever assignments they get, even if it's the harder cases. And that's, you know, that's the, the price you pay if you want to um, work for the government. That's sort of a normative point. One practical consideration I know Professor Semmel raised was that and that all could be true, but if in practice folks descend just to, to opt out of the system altogether and not be available for then either capital or non-capital um, assignments, there just would be fewer people, even if they could be drafted, they won't be there to, to assign to those cases. Frankly, I think that's wishful thinking on the opponent's part. I think that there are more than enough attorneys in the state, especially retired defense attorneys and retired prosecutors who will be more than happy to take these cases. And right now, the retired prosecutors are vetted out of the, the qualification pool by the state agency overseeing the qualification process unnecessarily solely because, let's say, their politics may, might not be what the, what the agency is looking for. Um, but there's no reason that a prosecutor cannot um, competently and even excellently handle a capital appeal once they've retired from, from uh, their prosecutorial practice. Uh, then let's go ahead and jump into some of the legal arguments that are presented by the petitioners in this case against Prop 66. So uh, the the first one is a, a jurisdictional issue. The claim is that um, one of the provisions in, in the proposition will direct habeas corpus appeals um, that are typically heard by the appellate or Supreme Court to the superior courts um, where the original trial was heard. And the claim is that that cuts off jurisdiction provided for by the Constitution. Uh, so what is the, the counter-argument that, that, you're, that you would propose against that one? Well, the problem with that argument is it fails to realize the critical difference between jurisdiction and venue. See, Prop 66 does not divest the Supreme Court or courts of appeal of subject matter jurisdiction here any more than the current mode of operation divests the trial court of jurisdiction. What it does is create a rebuttable preference for venue in the superior court in which the case was tried. Um, so it doesn't prevent a party whose petition for habeas corpus is denied in the trial court from appealing that through the court of appeal and all the way to the Supreme Court. They still have subject matter jurisdiction. It's just a matter of venue. Just like uh, every superior court in the state has jurisdiction over every cr- criminal complaint in the state, but venue is vested in the county and judicial district in which the crime occurred that venue can, under some circumstances, be changed. A case can be transferred to another county, 
but the presumption is that a criminal case will be tried in the county and judicial district in which it occurred. That is about, that's venue, that is not jurisdiction, and that's what we're doing here. It's about venue. There's another claim about the separation of powers between the various branches of government in the state of California, and and the claim here is that this um, arrangement created by ballot initiative will impose upon the courts um, a, a number of things, but will um, really affect the way that they are handling cases. And I suppose principle among the provisions complained about in this part of the petition is the the time limit that's set um, by Prop 66 upon you know, sort of the, the length of time between a, a conviction and an execution of um, ideally five years. Um, the argument is that this will dramatically affect the functioning of, of the courts, require them to devote more resources or really just sort of change the way they operate to accommodate the, uh, the proposition. Uh, what uh, is your counter on, on this point? Well, that was the topic the Supreme Court was most interested in oral argument. So clearly it, it piqued their interest. But the time limits in the initiative, specifically the five-year time limit um, for appeal, is written like many other time limits that currently exist under the law and which have previously been interpreted by the courts, including the Supreme Court, is directory. In other words, they are to be complied with if consistent with the ends of justice. Um, and this is not a this is not an issue of first impression. The court has upheld such time limits in numerous other cases. One counterargument to to that contention that the, the language is sort of permissive, the five year limit is not strict and mandatory, is that it sort of seems to uh, the argument goes cut against Proposition sixty six itself. If the you know, proposition doesn't provide a mandatory time limit, then I guess uh, is the argument it has that speed it speed up appeal. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, first. Saying that it's a time limit but not an absolute time limit is not inconsistent. In the criminal justice system, you can you can never have a completely inflexible rule that inures to the detriment of the, the accused. That would not be justice. There's always the recognition of the need for exceptions to all rules to achieve justice in wildly divergent circumstances. Complete inflexible, completely inflexible time limits would be uh, insanity and would be unconstitutional. But more important, the, the five-year time limit was never the primary vehicle to reduce the delay in this initiative. The primary changes to reduce delays were the immediate appointment of counsel, the limit on time to file opening briefs. And don't forget, the transfer of the habeas to the trial court, where you don't have to develop a factual record from scratch, will expedite those proceedings and will free up the Supreme Court to hear more direct appeals. Okay, so it's sort of, that's the aspirational goal, but the other provisions that deal with the mechanics of it are really the, the important ones. Correct. One uh, claim also deals with the, the single subject rule that provisions are supposed to, or ballot issues are supposed to abide by, and the claim is that there's many different provisions at issue here. Some um, deal with arguably uh, things not exactly pertaining to the death penalty. What uh, What is the counter uh, to this argument? Well, I'd say which things don't don't pertain to the death penalty. Name the thing in this initiative that doesn't pertain to the death penalty. And remember, this is called the Death Penalty Reform and Savings Act. So reform is a goal and savings is a goal. Uh, frankly, this is the petitioner's weakest argument. As we saw, the Supreme Court in oral argument was completely dismissive of this and basically told petitioner to quit that and move on. Um, the single subject rule is very, very broadly construed, and there is really no reasonable claim that the, the totality of subjects covered by this initiative are not all reasonably related 
to death penalty reform and savings. And I would be challenge anyone to go through topic by topic. Immediate appointment of counsel, that's a reform. Transfer of prisoners out of San Quentin, that's savings. Exemption of the protocol from the APA, that's reform and savings, both at the same time. And compared to other ballot initiatives, frankly, and some of the recent ballot initiatives we've seen, Proposition 66 is laser-focused on the reform and savings aspect and the relation to the death penalty. One other question about the, the savings aspect of the, the ballot initiative. Um, I know petitioners argue also that there would just be a necessity for additional resources to um, turn around cases more quickly and that the, the provision doesn't really provide those additional resources that actually will cost the state quite a bit more. What, uh, what's your counter there? Oh, but it does. Allowing the Department of Corrections to house condemned inmates in any prison facility has already been estimated by the legislative analyst offices, uh, generating a savings of, I think, hundreds of millions a year. I can't remember the exact number, but it's huge savings by that one aspect alone. Likewise, and far, far less in savings than rehousing the prisoners, but exempting it from the APA, which is a very lengthy and involved administrative process, is also going to save money. Uh, but the real, the real big, big savings comes from the ability to house prisoners other than at San Quentin, which is an antiquated and expensive facility, and also to double house some of these prisoners who are not super high risk. So that's where the money can come from. The state, the, the money that would other be otherwise be spent on that um, unnecessarily expensive housing. One, one final legal argument that's raised by the petitioners is a. Is a- equal protection clause claim. Um, And the argument here is that capital defendants will be sort of unfairly prejudiced as compared to non-capital defendants because perhaps 66 will prevent them from, uh, I think, bringing successive uh, habeas claims, whereas non-capital defendants can do so. What uh, what is the response on, on this point? Well, it may be very telling that the Supreme Court justices asked zero questions about the equal protection argument. There are numerous state and federal court rulings that have already held that capital and non-capital defendants are not similarly situated, which is the foundation for an equal protection claim. Um, Moreover, successive petitions will not outright disallowed for um, non-capital defendants or capital defendants have been severely discouraged by the Supreme Court in their opinion in Ray Reno. So I think that's that's a non-starter argument. Okay, then maybe zooming out just a bit to to focus uh, again on some some policy considerations. It, it seems like if I can sort of distill and, and summarize the petitioners' concerns, the the overarching and principal one is that um, you, you can't have both in capital um, cases. You, you can't have them be swift and reliable, and that if you make them more swift. You can only do so by trading off a commensurate amount of reliability and making sure you're executing the right people. Um, what is your response there? Is your claim that you know, it, that just isn't true, that you can have both swift and reliable uh, executions? I wouldn't use the word swift. I'd say swifter than the snail's pace at which we've been crawling. But the fact is, if you if you allocate more resources, you can you can finish the process more quickly without losing any due process. And if five attorneys can handle five cases and we allocate more resources and there's 10 attorneys, they can handle 10 cases. So if you provide the resources to move through the system faster and to make sure everyone has the resources they need, then there's no loss of due process. And other states do it. Other states do it. And other states, I'm not talking Alabama. I'm not talking Texas. I'm talking 
Oregon, I'm talking Arizona, our neighboring states in the ninth, uh, ninth district jurisdiction. Okay. One, one other point on, on resources, you speak about providing more attorney resources. The other concern is that just court time and judicial resources are, are too thin to accommodate the, the speed uh, of this provision. Uh, our previous guest argued that this provision would require the, the California Supreme Court to handle roughly a one capital case, at least a one, one a week, and that that uh, just isn't really possible. What uh, what, what is your response there? Well, if there's an issue with that, that's due to the backlog that's been caused by these delays. It's not indicative of the normal pace at which these cases occur. In a in a high year, there might be 12 capital verdicts in the entire state. And if we had those 12 capital verdicts coming in anew without a backlog, the courts would have no problem whatsoever handling the caseload. But it's like, you know, you, we ran up our credit card debt and we got to start chipping away at it slowly. And that's what's going to happen. No one expects them to hear the entire backlog of cases in one year, but we've got to start somewhere. And if we don't try, we certainly will never be able to eliminate that backlog of cases. In, in terms of resources at the, the superior court level, if they're hearing more habeas appeals than they would otherwise, is there a resource concern at that level? You know, the superior courts are always strapped for resources. They, you know, determine policy based upon the resources they have. But again, we're realistically looking at, you know, a, a couple of cases a year that result in capital verdicts. So those few, fewer number of cases, because there's so few capital verdicts compared to the overall number of criminal cases the courts handle, it's really not that bad of a burden. Moreover, if it's in the trial court, the trial court already knows the factual record. They're not starting from scratch like the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court would be. So it is much easier for them to quickly develop a supplemental factual record, having already heard the entire trial. Okay, maybe one last one. Obviously, you're a very interested party here. I'm sure you were very interested in the oral arguments on Tuesday. Did you get a, any sense as to how the various justices might have felt about the different arguments posed? Oh, I couldn't tell you justice by justice. I know that they were incredibly dismissive as a group of the single subject argument never broached the equal protection argument at all, and they were really focused on the five-year timeline. That really seemed to get their attention. Um, but as Mr. Scheidegger pointed out, that is not the cornerstone of the initiative, and there is a severability clause in this. So if they, if they found that single item unconstitutional, it would still not be a basis to strike the entire initiative as unconstitutional. Okay. Well, I guess we'll, we'll certainly find out soon enough as to how uh, the court feels about Proposition 66. Uh, for now, we'll go ahead and, and leave it there. Michelle Hannessy, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And with that, our program for June 9th, 2017 is complete. Thanks to both of my guests, and thank you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget, one hour of CLA credit can easily be yours. Just by completing a short true-false test you can find on our site. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>